everybody. Uh, welcome back to the Super Best Friends Music Show without any reverb because we don't need to do the reverb every time. Uh, I'm Dana Slattery and my co-hosts here, uh, Joe and Alan. Okay. Hey, you're the only one with the last name. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and the I don't have last name. Was born with just one name. <laughs> You'll get that when you earn it. <laughs> yes, um, ma'am. <laughs> yes, ma'am. This week we're talking about uh, Arthur Russell's "Love Is Overtaking Me," or Joe's. Joe is talking about. We're going to listen quietly. <laughs> well, yeah, we never talk over what yeah. about. <laughs> Hopefully, this one will be a little more coherent than the last one, um, which which Joe and I were pretty drunk for. And also, like, I think we just get crazy at night. Uh, oh yeah, that was a nighttime one. Was the last one? It was the yeah. nighttime one. It's been a while. Also, yeah, it's been a couple weeks. And it was Zappa, so we were all we were all on our baddest behavior <laughs> yeah oh we were being we were we were bad, we were bad. <laughs> you might be even call us little schoolboys in disgrace <laughs> um yeah so this one i i had heard this album before or like it, it's like a like a compilation of his songs right not like a mm-hmm. fully put together album um, I had heard it before. I didn't really know much about it or really much about him. Um, so I was really excited to kind of dive into this one a little more and learn about Arthur Russell more than I knew because it's a very, very interesting guy uh, and artist. And that, that's my relationship with it. It's like I'd heard it, but I don't, I really didn't know much about it. Uh, what about you, Alan? I have never really listened to him, never heard of him, actually. Uh, when Close My Eyes started, I did feel like I've definitely heard this song before. It's a beautiful uh, and, song. And then same with uh, Go Bang. I oh, was yeah. like, Not this... on this album, but like a, a Stone Cold classic. Yeah, I listened to it. I was like, this sounds incredibly familiar. Uh, well, but I didn't know him at all. I didn't know anything about his story. Uh, but I really love this album, and I listened to 2424 by Dinosaur L after listening to this, and I loved that as well. Oh, I'm so excited. I, I, I feel so. Um, so, yeah, so this, like, I picked this album, and I actually, like, it, it is uh, about like the one year anniversary of me discovering Arthur, and so. Uh, because I actually did not know him before March of last Arthur's. year. Sorry? You've chosen two of your three albums so far have been Arthur. Oh, yeah. Oh. I'm just an Arthur guy. I love you Arthur's. watch the cartoon? That's next. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Uh, just all Ziggy Marley all the time. <laughs> uh, the superior Marley, I'm saying it. <laughs> I, I don't think I think that, but well, I, 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 I haven't really given it enough research. Super heavy? But I picked this album. <laughs> what else? Was it with Ziggy Marley and Super Heavy? I don't the know. Weird, the weirdest band. It's Ziggy Marley, Joss Stone, and uh, Mick Jagger. What? and one of the guitarists for the Eurythmics and the guy that did the score to uh, Slumdog Millionaire <laughs> Dream Team 
All right. <laughs> <laughs> what did the kids what? like? The kids like. Uh, <laughs> it does feel like a gumbo. Exactly. They love the Rolling Stones. <laughs> they love you, Rhythmics. <laughs> what if we just mash it all together? <laughs> yeah, not even in a way that makes sense. I'm sorry, it's Damien Marley. Oh, well, you can go right to hell. Uh, <laughs> bring it that. Yeah, I'm. I'm so sorry. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna mute and I'll let you guys do this episode. <laughs> bring in that third tier Marley into this conversation <laughs> about a musical genius. All right, uh, but yeah. So I, I discovered Arthur at like the beginning of quarantine, and I fell down like such a rabbit hole of like I just really fell in love with this music and like the story i think that was a big thing for me is like the guy's life was so insane like i just like couldn't stop like reading about him because every new thing was insane and every new album sounded so different so i just like it it, it's a fun it's it's a fun rabbit hole to go through because it's a rabbit hole that keeps surprising you as opposed to like ooh, more of the same thing i like it's like oh this is just totally different so that was really exciting for me. And right. I, was I will to... say, I will say that's the one thing that I knew about Arthur Russell or like the one like idea I had about him was that what I had heard, all of it sounded like all over the place. Mm-hmm. I mean, sort of like in the same, you know, the same like idea, which is like this like experimental pop sort of stuff. Um, but like this love is overtaking me sounded so different from what I had heard. And it's like so different from like, you know, the loose joint stuff, obviously, but all from the same sort of starting place. And I think a lot of people get into Arthur for different reasons. Like Alan mentioned, like Go Bang is like, was like a pretty popular disco single. It was actually like probably his biggest hit while he was alive. Either that or (laughs) is it all over my face, which is a loose joint. So, so that's kind of funny. There's, I, I like I, I think that's another reason I love Arthur is that he's a really good lyricist like his lyrics are funny and charming and like he has that kind of winking dirty sense of humor like naming a disco song is it all over my face is so funny or but, uh, the, the dinosaur L song clean on your bean yeah. <laughs> I want to be clean on your bean it's weird because it's like dirty but it's also like the way an eight-year-old says penis mm-hmm. it's like very like coy and sweet <laughs> Well, I and feel that, like that that like rings out through a lot of his music, though. It's like mm-hmm. this sort of like childlike wonder, you know, yes. that he and tries I, to keep alive. And I think that as a very childlike person, I think I really responded to that. And like, uh, but like, I I actually would credit Arthur for making me reevaluate disco. Like, I, I would say like some people would get into him through that. Like I'm guessing since Alan said he heard that it was probably on like a compilation of like disco songs. Like it was, yeah. it, it, that is not super uncommon. That's how the guy that has been putting out all these Arthur uh, posthumous records, Steve Nutson, that's how he discovered Arthur. It was just like a random disco thing. He's like, Oh, I want to know more about him that he fell in love with like the story and this interesting thing. It has been, with Arthur's um, uh, domestic partner, uh, Tom Lee, like they've been putting out all these albums that we now have, but like these were mostly unreleased while he was alive. But like that, so that's one way a lot of people get into it. When, when did he die also? 92. Okay, yeah. 
that was when I was like, you know, kind of reading about him a little bit. I, I realized that he's about 20 years older than I thought he was. Like, did you guys get that? Or he mm-hmm. was about 20 years older than I thought he was. Like the, the music that I had heard from him just sounded like. So contemporary. So contemporary, like so ahead of its time. Like seeing the dates on some of these, I was like, oh my God, like that's actually crazy. You know, it mm-hmm. sounds like you know, animal collective or something like, yeah, it was like, the or 80s. like, um, like Radiohead, you feel like there was yeah. definitely some inspiration on like them and like Apex, like, like, oh, like the, 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 his approach to electronics is very interesting. Like, and I'm not, I've, I've only really recently been like embracing since in electronic music. Like it was just something that took me a long time to get into and I and Arthur definitely helped me reevaluate disco. Like so, like while that's a lot of people's entry point, that was maybe some of the more challenging stuff for me. And that this album, as soon as I heard that, like here, I'll just even play it. It's just such a beautiful his voice, this like folksy thing. I just heard this. And I was in, like, I was just mm. like, that's such a gentle, soothing voice. And the lyrics are um, weird. I mean, I've listened to this whole album and it's a long album, um, yeah. just in terms of the amount of tracks. I know it's only an hour yeah, long, tracks. 21 tracks. Um, and I like, but I think it's kind of hard for the rest of the album to top that, that, that first song. For me, it's just so beautiful. It's very beautiful. It's touching. And 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 right away, like you get like Arthur's, um, you get his like very sweet, deep like tenor voice, that is like very unusual in a way. It's it 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 is, it's not a voice that is common. It's a very unusual but nice voice, and then the lyrics are so. Um, I, I, I like like synest they're very like synesthetic like I close my eyes and listen to hear the corn come out it's just like oh that's so like like poetic it's very weird and like I'm like all right I'm hooked I'm like I'm in I want to know more about this guy and then the whole album really won me over and I just wanted to listen to everything by this guy and then like the story and I was trying to remember like why I even heard of him in the first place and it was uh it was a weird, a weird intro in that, uh, I don't know, this is maybe uh, too much, but uh, my morning routine is normally when I'm on the toilet, I read the new <laughs> Pitchfork reviews. Like, so some people have like, uh, you know, like I just do a Pitchfork and poop. On a previous episode, you mentioned that every morning you read the new Pitchfork reviews. Yeah, and it's so on the toilet. It's, now, it's a, now it's a slow reveal. <laughs> it's a pitchfork and poop. Next <laughs> week we find out you do it completely in the nude. <laughs> oh, I, I, how, how do you poop? You With the car do. battery hooked up to your nipples. Add a Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, and it was because of like, it was just, it was this very weird German uh, trans classical vocalist made this very experimental album where everything is her voice. Hmm. And it's oh, like, cool. but it's like altered through electronics. So it sounds like. What, what's her name? Her name is Lyra Pramuk. Lyra Pramuk. 
and this album Fountain. So it was new at the time, and they just happened. And this is an album I think I find very impressive, but don't I wouldn't necessarily. It's more of a piece of art than like something I would yeah. listen to casually, because sure. it is very strange. But uh, it's funny because I was thinking about when I was watching the Arthur Russell documentary. I was thinking he reminds me if Mike Patton wasn't like a bro, like, <laughs> an, like an aggressive bro. Yeah, just with his like eclecticism and and just vocal. not putting out like arthur russell and dinosaur l it's like dinosaur it's like different groups and just kind of acting in different uh uh groups of people yeah i find that like very very cool to not be like so like because it seemed like he you know watching the the um documentary that we all watched um a wild combination I wild combination yeah. yeah wild it's a very combination. good film yeah it was it was really wonderful i uh well, what's his name who directed it just want to give a shout out to him matt wolf okay matt wolf wild combination yeah um just hearing how like even though arthur russell was like kind of at some level like looking to reach like a really wide audience and kind of become like this you know like famous like pop artist um but he also would release stuff under all of these different names so it was like would have kind of been hard to do that you yeah. know yeah. but just to be like oh you know like this project i'm you know corn belt you know or whatever a killer, a killer, yeah, whale. killer whale dinosaur l loose joints indian ocean just dinosaur uh there's bands the flying hearts and the necessaries and then he also would just show up in like like classical ensembles and stuff so like yeah it's i think it just makes it so much more true to the art of it all yes, you know totally. when you're not attaching your reality into it and just letting it exist as a piece on its own and independently of yourself yeah yeah that's like that's, very very respectable to me yeah I, um, I mean that's the thing i think that really rings out in the documentary is he just was an artist like he was just always making music if he wasn't composing his own music he was playing as a side person like he was just so immersed and so true to art and like while he definitely wanted that success for himself i think if he could just keep doing art i don't think he would have been like unhappy yeah that, i think that so, was my favorite line from his parents at the very very tail end of the movie when the mom's no. like you know who knows like what would have happened with arthur had he been able to keep you know doing his thing had he lived and the dad's like he would have made a lot more tapes that's yeah sure. they're like 200 or 300 more cassettes i don't know yeah <laughs> yeah like, maybe. like that just was like part of who he was like he just had this unending drive to just like record 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 and then like some of it got released and i'm glad that so much of it is getting you know posthumously released but yeah because yeah, he'd only released uh, as himself on for his own stuff world of echo right yeah world of record a uh, world of echo was the only thing released under his own name mine is um philip glass put out a classical thing that he did but like only released like 320 copies oh, so yeah. that's that, like, cool yeah it doesn't totally <laughs> It almost doesn't count. The World of Echo actually like like got a release, and okay. um, was uh, and actually I don't know if Philip Glass did that before he died or not. So I don't know that off 
off the top of my head if that was actually also a postulate. But I was very talk. surprised to learn about the like the um cert, like the avant-garde uh classical um, yeah so um aspect to all of this as well yeah so i think that 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 is probably how i want to like structure this episode just going through arthur's life and i think that is a good way to talk about this album uh love is overtaking me because it does kind of it is like uh dana mentioned like 21 tracks long it's it it is a long album but the songs also go from i think the earliest one is from the 70s and then uh, some of the later tracks on the album are from like 91 90 90 91 like the two years before he died so like pretty he was just still making music even when he was like like truly uh ravished by um uh aids related uh disease and he uh he was still making some like really beautiful music even while his like body and mind were failing him and it's really lovely and I think it's a nice, like, so you get, like, all these different, even though it is certainly a more traditional album in terms of, like, they, a lot of these are just, like, uh, like, folky, poppy, like, fun songs, but you get all these sides of Arthur through that. You get some of, like, the classical composition and the cello. It, it's uh, I, That's why I picked it. I think it's a great entry point and a great um, springboard to talk about his life because that yeah, you, is... You get, definitely get a full spectrum of them. Mm-hmm. yeah and it is such an interesting life and that's like so like no 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 diss to lira Pramuk, but i like in one line of the pitchfork review they mentioned like oh the way she uses her voice is similar to arthur russell I'm like well this is a weird use of the voice so well, how, how is it similar to anything so i clicked <laughs> on arthur russell and then i i almost just totally forgot about this album until i was really <laughs> Poor Lyra, it's a very impressive piece of work, but I just, because they happened to mention Arthur Russell, I just fell in love with Arthur because of that. I just said, because it's just such an interesting story. So, um, yeah, so I, I can jump into like his life uh, as he's, he's born in 1951. So yeah. Same like, age. That's crazy. That to me, I, just because he was so like ahead of his time, like he was like, you know, he seemed like a, a young guy in the 90s in New York. Like, if you had told me he was, like, 20 when he was, like, putting out World of Echo, like, in yeah. New York City, I would have been like, yeah, that fully checks out. But no, he was born in 51. Okay. Born in 51. So same age as my mom and dad. My dad's 19. My mom is. Uh, so um, I'll bleep that out. Why? <laughs> Your mom doesn't want her age broadcasted for millions to hear. Joseph Polana. <laughs> no. <laughs> Mr. Joe. She went, Which I know is what she gray. calls you. She went gray in her like like 20s and never dyed it. So she's been like, I'll just cut all of this so she doesn't come after us. No, no, no. She like has been like, I think she's just been willing to let people think she's older than she is for 30 for years. Booze. <laughs> she's a cool lady. Anyway. Uh, you can leave just that part. <laughs> my mom's cool. My, my mom was born, was born in, in she's a cool my mom, lady. She's a cool lady. Right. <laughs> See, I, maybe it's just because I watched the documentary before I listened through the album. Oh, yeah? Uh, but I, I felt like the time fit in for me 
because it does remind me of like the modern lovers and and a lot of the uh, earlier talking head stuff and later talking head stuff even yeah so, there's definitely so, like a it makes sense that like those were his contemporaries yeah and that's the thing is this really feels i mean and the fact that it didn't work and take off is what makes sense the most that it's from then yeah and, like right. the reason we can appreciate it now is because it's from then and it like i don't know i people weren't ready then anything that like much of real art i think is gonna be hard to take off yeah uh, totally and well, it, it and it it feels like um like the first half of this album i think it really like it, it is not an album truthfully like data said it's a compilation but it's shocking how well it holds up and when you're listening to it at least for like the first half you're like oh this feels like a great 1970s singer songwriter album mm -hmm. but like but it never got released until like 2016 which is just crazy like it just it, it feels of the time but then also some of it feels Timeless. so um, contemporary alan have you listened to world of echo i don't believe i have okay so, i'll play well, a little bit of it yeah definitely listen to that one um because i think that's why i was like like if you see him on the cover like he looks like a Williamsburg guy in like 2011. Like, it, oh, you I see think you're him... thinking of uh, calling out of context. Oh, that's the calling one out of context. That's, that's the, one. the one where he has like, yeah, like the trucker yeah. hat, right? Yeah. Like, and and if you listen to it, like, it's it's so like poppy and and interesting and uh, like yeah, some of these layered songs are from and textured. 1973. <laughs> I was just so, you know, maybe that's just like I had my own impressions about it before I really looked into it. Um, but I was just like so shocked that he was uh, as old as he was. Hmm. Yeah. So he's still died he's too young. But... Yeah. He died too young. But yeah, he was born uh, in the 50s uh, in uh, in Iowa. And I feel like, I mean, right on the opening track, we have like, I, I listened to hear the corn come out. Like, I feel like Iowa made such. An impression on him is he just had this he he was a like a child of like the field like he had this love of nature he was a lot of the songs he has are about corn and like it a lot of his songs are about his childhood he has a very um a childlike wonder like we talked about and i think also he had a hard childhood and so iowa just like really his time there imprinted on him because he was certainly um, not out as a young man. So he, he he's he's queer in a small Iowa town in the 50s and 60s. So that's hard. He he has terrible acne growing up and was sensitive about his acne scars his whole life, which is just sad and relatable. And so he's just and he's. Uh, an artist like he wants to do like he's studying cello like classical cello and piano as a young man that's like his first real musical interest is classical music and getting into that and like then he he starts like it's the 60s he starts getting into um like more counterculture stuff in, in addition to the classical music and more world music he was really into uh like indian music and um uh and, and non-western music and uh, he he lived in uh san francisco mm -hmm. right for a time oh yeah 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 so that's like right after like so basically he also gets into 
smoking weed. He's a big stoner his whole life, but uh, it's the 60s. His parents are really straight-laced Midwestern. Like His dad's like an insurance. So he, they catch him with weed. They don't understand it. They only know the panic around weed. And his dad, I think, in the documentary, admits like he like knocked him down. Like he like pushed him. He bounced to the him off the floor a couple of times. That's what he, he said. said. <laughs> yeah, so I rewatched it this morning. It's it it's really sad because and like you can hear like I mean now like they're talking about it now after having like lost their son who they love. Oh, he, I should also say he's born uh, Charles Arthur Russell. So they they call him Charlie a lot, but his he went by Arthur because he. His dad was also Charles, so he didn't want to be little Chucky, as they called him. So, yeah. So he just had a hard. So he had a really hard time in Iowa, and that you hear that in a lot of the songs. Him still kind of grappling with never really getting to be himself, never really being understood, never really getting along with everyone around him, essentially, for eighteen years. I understand that would yeah, still right. make an impression on you that you'd still be grappling with that for a long time. But um, so he he basically runs away from home after his dad beats him up for having weed, and he joins a commune in San Francisco. And he's like kind of in charge. He he gets really into Buddhism, and that's also a big through line in a lot of the music. Is this kind of um zen-like quality and like that is a big reason he's really into echo and minimalism this idea of kind of letting go and like letting the music like wash over you and engaging in music in a very different way and a, a very uh he describes it as like he wants it to be like a healing thing that like it music should be healing to like kind of, and i feel like the cello is a very fitting instrument for him because it is such like a a there's like a very physical component to like the reverb of the cello, the like the vibrations and the way he he gets as he gets more avant-garde, the way he plays the cello. There's very few videos of him while he's alive, but in the ones you can find, you see him like he's really like he's playing it. He's he's like hitting it in like getting these sounds out of it that you did not know could come out of a cello. So. Yeah, like, even some like his his vocalizations along with his cello playing uh, in some of those videos in this like in Phil Niblock's uh, studio place. And Phil Niblock is I was really excited to see a um, a connection between them um, because Phil Niblock's this like now very you know famous um, experimental uh, musician and director filmmaker. Um, and he Phil Niblock actually recorded a lot of those videos that you see in their like oh yeah their their you know whatever art art space musical art space um and there's this one video of of arthur like singing i believe that song eli which is also on this on this record uh and it's just like i've never heard anybody sing like that it's like he's one with the cello it's like just another string on the instrument is his voice Mm. like just sort of you know moaning with it this beautifully yeah, it's really so, and I think that's where he starts kind of developing that is in this commune because he would just play for like seven hours a day, just like really getting like practicing like more traditional classical music or classic West Western classical music, 
Indian classical music and then just being one with this cello, just being high alone with a cello for seven hours and really uh, meditating with it, essentially. And uh, I like the reason he leaves the commune. They talk about it in the documentary is that they they were a commune, so they thought like he shouldn't have the cello to himself. It's just like, <laughs> all right, I'm out. Like, and just the idea of traveling alone as an 18 year old just hitchhiking with like a, a cello is is wild <laughs> like so already like for it's me my back hurt to think about it yeah but, <laughs> so like i again like i think i'm really drawn to like the story of this guy's life but like and like that's a, like it feels like, like like a folk tale it doesn't feel like real life but this guy's just this experimental cellist traveling the highways and byways of the 60s is wild and then of, and then on top of that this like he he then bumps he just happens to bump into Allen Ginsberg like the one of the most famous um beat poets of all time and like he meets him in San Francisco kind of at the height of Allen Ginsberg's uh fame and notoriety this is around the time of uh, the obscenity trials for Howell, maybe a little bit later. I think that's probably the 50s. So this is probably post-obscenity trials. Um, he meets Alan Ginsberg. They, they actually date briefly. Alan Ginsberg, there's some archival things about him being like really just like attracted to Arthur like right away just as a person and as an accompanist. And Alan Ginsberg is a big part of Arthur's story because then uh, he really discovers him and starts bringing him to the world and like some of his earliest things that he's doing is playing cello while uh alan ginsburg reads poetry and alan like takes him on tour essentially like he's doing poetry readings while arthur like composes on the spot and like is really and alan is really blown away by that and it's working really well and through that he, arthur is yeah like barely over 18 at this point uh, and finally he's getting to do art finally getting to be like out and proud like with this like prominent gay art uh, gay poet he's really getting to explore his own sexuality and I don't I don't necessarily want to say that Arthur was uh, gay so much as just queer because he did there they don't talk about it in the documentary but he did still like sleep with women throughout his life too so it, it, yeah it, I don't want to reduce him to one label, which is hard both as a music, music, musically and as a person, but he certainly, he, the like love of his life was a man, like the man that he like lived with and um, spent most of his life with, uh, most of his relationships were with, with men, but he, he, he did seem to be more fluid than just one thing but he's exploring yeah. that for the first time and getting to and with Allen Ginsberg of all people so yeah. it's just like this is crazy this is just right Iowa hayseed blows into California and just like starts hooking up boom. with yeah right <laughs> the most famous people and outside of Jack Kerouac um, <clears throat> I didn't recognize that that was Allen Ginsberg in the documentary for a minute yeah and then I've I never have, seen him older I don't know this is like a <laughs> Uh, a single like that was released that I really like so I think this is a good time to play it is it's just it is Arthur and one of the, like the bands he would play with just accompanying Allen Ginsberg and it's really cool it's just like a random single called Ballad of the Lights when do you think this is from sits on the bridge oh uh, let's see I can actually find that that is on 
band camp. So let me find that part. I don't know it off the top of my head. He wonders about life. And he wonders if he'll ever get old. He sees the lights. Okay, just says 1977. So this is later. And he wonders. But it's a good like window into what people might have seen. Yeah. And he asks if they are. My mind settles down on those lights from New Jersey. Why I chose New Jersey to look at, I don't know. <laughs> I, I really do love Arthur's writing. Just the line, why, why I chose New Jersey to look at, I don't know. <laughs> it's so, it's so, he really just has a, a, a startling simplicity. It just is, it's very straightforward language, but it's very, it's not used in ways you've heard. Like, those aren't phrases that other people think of. Um, so I, I really love that. And so, yeah, it's it, just like that mix of the, the that's like some of the, the more like cello, less poppy side of him, but then he still turns it into a singer songwriter, <laughs> like type number, country-ish. And so I think, yeah, there's like a bit of a country tinge to the first, half of the album so that kind of is betrays his like Iowa upbringing as well like whether or not he like tried to reject it it's just in there and it's really it's really cool and then I don't think he tried to reject it necessarily I think yeah you know it seems like it was something that that he held like you know just a candle for like throughout his life in 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 his songs even though he was you know he was a part of these like really you know, intellectual art scenes in New York and San Francisco. It's like, there's always like just something like, you know, he's remembering his roots, I think, or he can't quite shake them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah, think he definitely shows a love for it. Yeah. yeah. And when he talks yeah, about I, I even know, just like I, in that I, first, sorry, go ahead. What were you going to say? Oh, just like right off the bat in the album where he talks about closing his eyes so we can hear the corn. It's like, that's just a very clear statement of like how much he just loves that place and the feeling of like the peace it has. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Reject was too strong a word, I guess, but like he didn't want to live there yeah, as no a, like really he needed to run away home. in order to fall in love with it. <laughs> to really. That's I think, how I feel about New Hampshire too. <laughs> I think that's how a lot of people yeah. feel about where they grew up. <laughs> fuck out of here. Although and I just the, went one state over to <laughs> New Hampshire flipped upside down. You just went to like to nice New Hampshire. <laughs> I just went to nice New Hampshire. Yeah. What's New Hampshire is... without all the anger? Yeah. <laughs> I like to think that like Vermont like, is is it's both like on the map a mirror image of New Hampshire and then also in every social respect a mirror image of New Hampshire. It, it <laughs> just, totally is. <laughs> I, I used to do a joke that like they have every they have all the same things but for different reasons <laughs> like, <laughs> like it'll be like yeah we both don't like the government and like <laughs> vermont's like i just think they could do better new hampshire's like what do you mean i can't bring my gun to walmart it's <laughs> 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 just like oh you got there from different ways but i guess <laughs> <laughs> but yeah there's a lot of similarity but uh <laughs> um but yeah so then while he's touring with alan ginsburg alan ginsburg uh like essentially buys him an apartment in new york which is sugar daddy yeah and uh i i just love this Uh, i don't know 
where I read it, but I just it's it's one of my favorite facts is that Allen Ginsberg would supply all like the artists like living in this apartment with electricity, <laughs> like through like extension cords because like they couldn't pay for their own. Like, and I just love that so much. That's great. It's just yeah, it's just it, it is like is what you want new york in the 70s to be like all these like artists like scrapping and making weird cool shit but like uh arthur like is pretty much like while he never gets like recognized on like the pop scale that he wants in when he enters uh, new york he's like embraced pretty quickly by like the classical scene it gets into like a dual degree program with the Manhattan School of Music at Columbia. Like he's studying uh, electronic music and classical composition. Hmm. And I think taking classes in uh, linguistics and uh, again, Indian classical music. Like there is, I think his approach to, you really hear like the Indian influence and like some of the percussion and his approach to like using the cello to do like drones. And like also very, very early before like drone music becomes a thing. But he really embraced that sense of like uh, minimalism and like a sustained. Yeah, that's where it was all kind of like lost in born like that time and and those people like that circle is is what sort of brought that stuff to, you know, the con- contemporary scene in in the United States anyway. Also in general, mm-hmm. I feel like it was just like, how far out can we get with our classical music? And yeah. it kind of changed the game, really. And, and that's still, you know, the ripples of that stuff is still being felt. Like, it, it created a whole genre, really. Yeah. Experimental and, and continu- minimalism. Mm. And what I didn't really know, because I didn't, I, I, I don't have much of a classical background, so I did not really know this stuff, uh, is I was reading this interesting, like, essay. I don't know where I even came across this but like this it must have been for somebody's like thesis or something this essay because it was really like an academic essay about Arthur and his influence on like pop and classical music and he's explaining the classical scene and like Arthur is butting heads with some of the more established classical musicians at this point because there's this guy who is teaching at Columbia while he's there named Charles Wu Orinen Charles Wernin. I don't Never know heard of him. He won a Pulitzer Prize. He, he was like one of the youngest men to win a Pulitzer Prize for his contemporary classical music. And he let it seemingly go instantly to his head. <laughs> There's a whole part of his Wikipedia page just about him being an asshole. <laughs> like, it's pretty funny that he just like, he, and like right up until the end of his life, he was just being an asshole. Like he was mad that the Pulitzer Prize people gave Kendrick Lamar a Pulitzer and said, this is the final disappearance of any societal interest in high culture. What a prick. What a dumbass. How but far yeah, up your ass like, you have to be. He was just really into this thing called like serial composing, where it was like based on like using a chromatic series of notes and like building off of that. And like basically, if anyone tried to not use this in his class, he thought they were an idiot. And Arthur, very Arthur, like tried to like he had this composition he was working on called uh, called City Park, where uh, it was a it was intended to be. And this is something Arthur explores throughout his later music too. He wanted it to be something that listeners could plug in and out of without uh, 
without feeling lost like they like in this kind of idea of more experiential minimalist music and uh almost like what eventually becomes ambient with like brian eno describing his approach to uh like that like music that can be that you don't have to pay attention to but is still absorbing in a way and so arthur is basically describing that in 1973 and this uh composer says it's the most unattractive thing i've ever heard <laughs> but it's like now it's like a big genre but what i right. i didn't know is like these names that feel big in the documentary people that are uh close to arthur at this point so philip glass and stephen reich like names that are like even if you're not like super into classical you probably at least heard um like like me i mean like like I at least knew those names it's like those are big names mm -hmm. they were just starting out so they weren't like there really to back up Arthur they were with him and they, they were giving him jobs and they were all working together but now they would be considered like authoritarian but they're just they're also just kids at this point which is crazy right, right. and again kind of continues Arthur's like weird like almost careers throughout his life where he's just like almost a part of this big movement I mean he is a part of it but he never reaches Philip Glass heights or he never reaches like Stephen Reich at least in classical music because he's not he's too interested in too much like while he's yeah. while he's getting nice like heat and notice in the classical world he gets really interested in uh what he calls like bubblegum music he gets really into like proto-punk music he loves the modern lovers he's in New York he loves the talking heads and he like actually there is a, an early version i should try to find it there's an early version of um, psycho killer where he plays cello on it and in the documentary uh they say like it just doesn't work but i don't know if that's true i don't I, it definitely doesn't work like psycho killer the single does but it's still cool wild right yeah i mean i don't it's think so that it doesn't work i just think that it doesn't need it maybe and they probably yeah, it's, knew just, that it's just too. a different song yeah, at this point. yeah. i think it goes it, more it's almost like psycho killer it sounds like that's true yeah it definitely it like goes more towards the theme of the song i feel like yeah but david Byrne was probably like you can't hear me well enough get it well, out <laughs> that whole first album is so much more like a a rock combo album than like yeah I, remain in light and later probably stuff. do that at some point i love talking heads yeah we're stuff. definitely gonna have to get into the talking heads but basically so like arthur like one of his big opportunities early in life uh, in, in, in 1970 is he gets uh he's in he becomes music director for this uh avant-garde performance space called the kitchen and it's mostly avant-garde 
uh, art music and he books the modern lovers and talking heads and like these people are like like the like snobs of a high order of like this has to be art and art and and Arthur's just like I want you to hear this cool pop pop music that is <laughs> and I I don't know what art what the modern lovers played there but I love the idea of them doing this in front of. I'm a little airplane, yeah. I'm a little airplane, yeah, yeah. I'm a little airplane, yeah. I'm a little airplane, yeah, yeah. Waggy wag, waggy wag. I'm a little airplane. I just love the idea of like avant-garde so classical Richmond. composers having to listen to "I'm a Little Airplane" it makes me so happy. Imagine I just, just being, it's all connected. Like well, for him, yeah. it really was. And, there's this innocence there's this approach to music that they're getting that he wants classical music to have and people aren't seeing the connection that Arthur sees. I, I hope you guys also sort of went this way when when you were learning about Arthur Russell like sort of seeing like a similar thing that Brian Wilson was trying to do yeah. where it's like this like pop music like and God's music can be the same like you know it doesn't have to be separate like they're you know it's meant to be it can be it can go together and be really powerful and I think like one of my favorite songs on this album that was like recorded uh, so a lot of these I had I found uh, I wish I owned a hard copy of this I don't I just have like the download of it but I found some like nice like breakdown of all the session musicians on it and so uh, a lot of them are recorded with um, Ernie Brooks of the Modern Lovers on bass, and cool. um, so like they are they're a big um, influence on Arthur and a big like collaborator. Like that's like I think a really cool thing about Arthur is his willingness to collaborate and bring collaborators together from all these different things. So when he is composing. Um, he makes this album called Instrumentals that was intended to be like um, anywhere from like like a minute to a 48 hour piece of like this ensemble is given uh, block arrangements of melodies, but they can play the melody in any order and improvise around the chords. So it's very simple chords, which is his minimalist leanings. But then he gets like kind of like a rock rhythm section playing with all these like classical um composers and it's a really beautiful album i really love so you get like these repetitions but then like this guitar and drum line but it's it's wild it's just a really weird bit of and i think this is this i don't know if this was released in his lifetime as an album it was performed like once or twice Never, I think, for 48 hours straight like he had <laughs> wished he could do. But um, it's really interesting. And mm -hmm. I, I really recommend this album that collects his I really like the clips of this, of the instrumental stuff that was in the documentary, too. Yeah, there's definitely, like, some similarities between what Brian Wilson was doing and, and that. I haven't heard that instrumentals album, but I really... I really know. recommend it because it, it is like you really I think that is probably maybe the best distillation of this phase of Arthur's career where you really see him blending this classical music upbringing with um with like 
70s pop music and mm. a way that I, I think really is quite lovely it works in a very it is very compositionally interesting but it's still like it's a very avant-garde way of composing a piece but it feels like you could hear it on the radio like it's very like it's it swings like yeah <laughs> for lack of a better word and then I love like that he was getting into like punk because like, you don't really hear that side of him so much on Love Has Overtaken Me. You hear it a little bit more at some of these songs that Iowa Dream. But one of my favorite songs on this is this kind of like almost um, like Modern Lovers, like Velvet Underground type song called Time Away that has like a very proto art punk uh, delivery, but is also that same Arthur childlike wonder. It's just about cleaning your room. <laughs> Away to dream. I'm taking time out to clean up my room. And when I clean up, my room will gleam. Because dreams aren't as unreal as they seem. I'm taking time away to dream. I'm taking time out. Put the records in their covers and then. I'll put the albums back into their place And I'll sweep up this morning and when I look at the clock, I see it says 10 Yeah, I, I, I just... I love that song. That's probably one of my favorites on the album just because it, it is so unusual <laughs> in a really fun way. I don't right, know. and the fact that... I mean, I think now knowing that these songs weren't necessarily all meant to be heard together knowing that it was some like somebody else kind of picking you know songs from different tapes and making their own uh album that is like you know pretty cohesive in in one way like you know compared to some of arthur russell's other stuff like this one is definitely mm -hmm. more like songs and like there's more like folky stuff sort of like more like guitar bass it sounds like you know definitely more sort of like a straight straight shooter I think in terms of like some of the songs or the song choices on this one um, but knowing that it was somebody else kind of just like putting them together like maybe Arthur Russell wouldn't have put them together in the same way mm -hmm. well it is really weird to think that you have no idea how he would put any of these together. Right, right. Well, that is such like a crazy, I, I, know, I know I know we've discussed it of like how important sequencing can be in something and the thing that there was no part of this is weird. Yeah, right. It was just like somebody else is like, this makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like yeah, either- it's over a 20 year period and it flows nicely, but it's, yeah, it's, it's Yeah, wild. but it is definitely like very much all over the place. Mm -hmm. Like- and I don't know, just like listening to that one and then like that first track, you know, yeah. and then some of the other tracks down the line. It's like there's definitely like a, an idea, you know, that's sort of bringing all these things together. And I think it makes sense. But it's like to think about like um, calling out a context like versus this one I kind of I don't know. It's just the album's really long and there's a lot going on. And I think it was somebody else's like idea to kind of, you know cherry pick all these ones that they sort of thought like went together but it's not really Arthur Russell who put them together well in some ways and I think like this next phase of his career you really do see him being his own worst enemy because in a lot of ways 
he might have never put out another album that's while he was true yeah. he was such an incessant tinkerer that things were rarely good enough for him slash he kind of liked later in life the idea of things being unfinished and constantly reworked by different producers which is not it's very cool artistically but not a very uh commercial idea of like things right. never being finished and never being really owned by one person it, right. it, it's hard to uh talk <laughs> record companies into embracing that um yeah, and that's what I kind of thought, like, as I was just, like, thinking about, like, okay, well, what was, like, the, the, the kind of, the driving force behind putting all these songs together on one thing, and I was, like, maybe they just wanted, you know, to make money, <laughs> like, you know, they're, like, these are the songs, so, you know, some more, like, sort of folky, mm -hmm. um, more traditional, like, songwriter, singer-songwriter songs, and they're, like, let's get these all on an album people yeah, like that i think it's really not commercial for them because tom is retired it steve nutson was like had uh he was he worked for like, he was like ceo of like a successful company before he did this i think it's really just like they felt like these ones went together and like yeah. this was a side of arthur that up until this album came out nobody had really heard these songs so it was just, just like I, like just like getting them out there yeah like, we just the need to get, get them out there that's the and these goal. ones fit together and right. actually uh interestingly like it's kind of a, a perfect transition a lot of them actually were recorded together a lot of them come from this one session with a, a very influential producer named uh, john hammond who is like uh he worked with like bob dylan bruce springsteen benny goodman like count basie like he was one of the first like wow. white mm. record producers to um record a lot of like uh jazz and bring that to like uh and like Jesse Smith like uh, a lot of um uh early black music it was he was a big uh pro big influence in the 30s of getting that out uh on on airwaves and to uh white audiences like uh, it might not have happened quite as uh, dramatically without um without uh, John Hammond and then his son, John Hammond Jr. or the third, I don't know how many John Hammonds there are, but um, he's like a pretty good like blues guitarist. I like, my dad really likes this album. He did, that's like all covers of uh, Tom Waits songs that I, I think I, I prefer just the Tom Waits songs, but it's, it's a, they're, they're good. <laughs> they're good Tom Waits songs, <laughs> uh, but yeah. So either way, like, like this is again, Arthur just, constantly being his own worst enemy is that he has this like influential producer is willing to like make an album for him it, uh he's working he's got a band called the flying hearts with this guy from the modern lovers this uh drummer uh, david van Tegum, who worked with brian eno david byrne like, like like he's got a good band a great producer and just never makes an album with them like he just never he's always tinkering it just never comes to fruition and then because they were made and saved thank god they ended up on this album but a lot of them actually are from like these uh recording sessions let's see i have a breakdown um from with john hammond you get and these songs are also not necessarily things that you would think were all from like the like the same recording sessions but like close my eyes maybe she 
Um, I don't, uh, probably Time Away. It doesn't say actually who produced that, but it sounds like it, it's got Ernie Brooks on it. Nobody Wants a Lonely Heart. I couldn't say it to your face. Uh, what it's like, like a lot of these songs, even Eli was with John Hammond. So they actually, a lot of the ones from the seventies actually, and maybe that's what it is. Is like, this is probably a, closer to a double album, but if it had been a single album, there's probably one album that Arthur actually did intend to be. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I, I will say also, I do think that something that I, a note of criticism for the album is that sure. it's too long. It's too, it's, there's so many songs. And I think that it's just like, that was just something like listening to it. And, you know, I don't love all of them. Like I love some of them. Um, but that, that is interesting to know that a lot of them are from the same recording session. So maybe it, it was like more. Uh, and you know, know what? It looks like based on the vinyl track listing, it, like, it would be a two uh, a double album it looks yeah. like almost all tr- tracks um let's see uh one through 11 are mostly the ones from like the 70s and with that it's not totally true there's like one or two that are sprinkled throughout but these are the ones chronologically that are mostly all from those john hammond sessions and then mm. there's one song on side uh on disc two or record two so so that is also john hammond but for the most part these are later and if you actually look at that divide that makes sense as two different albums like those go together probably better than this is all one album close my eyes to how how does everybody know that i forget and i can't tell down to love comes back and those sound like albums together and I again since I have it all as a digital thing maybe I didn't really appreciate that but it maybe is better in the physical form just in that as two pieces mm-hmm. yeah yeah and I mean because I think that the way they released music in the early 2000s too is like here is a giant dump of stuff <laughs> yeah we split it up in two it should be two but uh we'll charge you 20 instead of 14 yeah yeah <laughs> And you know what? I said 2016 because I don't know why. That's what it said on my iTunes, but it looks like it was actually released in 2009. So I should. That was the vinyl. The um, oh, Spotify yeah. has it 2004. Oh, okay. So, all right. <laughs> so, Wait, Joe got something say, very um, wrong. This is over 10. Uh, whatever. Joe already went. Joe already left it. Now, you know what? Let's just start this recording over again. And then Wikipedia has it as 2008. So oh who knows God. when the fuck this album came out? <laughs> uh, it's um, really interesting that nothing he did on his own he could manage to release, but he did so many projects as um, collaborations yeah. that he was able to get out. Uh, I think that says a lot about probably growing up in Iowa and having like to go to San Francisco and not really being as sure as like himself alone as he is with this group of people that he's found. Right. That he's like more confident in like this dinosaur L stuff because everyone else did. And even in the documentary, they talk about how when he first heard Go Bang, he's like, oh no, I'm ruined. I'm ruined. 
And, and then he was yeah. they're like, oh no, people love it. He goes, Oh, all right, yeah. <laughs> I guess they do. It's all right. Yeah, and and like so this part in like the mid-70s is just like where when that like those John Hammond sessions when this never... CD was first released. Sorry? When this CD was first released. <laughs> yes, in the, <laughs> in the mid-70s. So <laughs> The John Hammond sessions, nothing comes of it. This is just like a period of like Arthur kind of creatively getting his ass kicked as like by like careers. Like just nothing is working for him in this point. Like he he does get to perform instrumentals and that's kind of a little success. But then he has uh, this big opportunity that Philip Glass gives him to score a experimental theater piece called... um, a tower of meaning and uh no it was, it, sorry that's what the album was eventually called but it the piece was, was uh, einstein on the beach right no einstein on the beach is what philip glass did so that was like a big launching point for philip glass but it's the same director robert wilson is giving arthur this chance to score medea a, a version of the, the first Greek. tyler perry movie <laughs> Yes, so Arthur is going to dress like an old black woman in the South, and it would have launched him. He would have been hugely successful if he had just done that. But he said, no, that's Only one person came to see that play, and that man was Tyler Perry. (laughs) Arthur's connection to What if that's what happened? (laughs) This play would be much funnier if it was a loud black woman from the South. Yeah, but... uh, so Arthur just refuses like he just he just can't get the score in on time he keeps wanting to fix it they they ban him from rehearsals because he keeps wanting to work on the score and like they describe him in the documentary as like hanging out in the rafters like the, the phantom of the opera and he just he really is his own worst enemy in so many ways he just keeps um keep sabotaging any like career he could have even though he's making music that like everyone around him likes it is trying You're to like help this him. is fine just put it out it's, it's like he needed that someone else to be next to him to actually push it out well yeah that's what i was gonna say like when you were talking about like oh he had so many projects that came out with other people i was like yeah because like he didn't he maybe didn't necessarily have the creative control to say like this is done or like this needs to be incessantly tinkered with for the next four years. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, to some extent, that's why disco really worked for him is then in like the late seventies, this is where he kind of comes out of this funk. um, (laughs) Yeah. uh, Then into a new funk because he gets into, um, he gets really into disco. Yeah. Arthur's got a brand new bag, (laughs) but, uh, he, uh, he gets really into disco and starts making, like, the the people he gets to work on his disco songs are, like, avant-garde, like, orchestra people, people that played with, and then also people that played with cool. Gloria Gator. And it's just, like, his brain is so wild that he would get these, like, avant-garde trombone, this avant-garde compotist, com- trombonist, uh, <laughs> Peter Zummo, to, like, play on these, like, almost, like, um, they are like disco songs they're dance music but not like what anyone else would think to do so this is like one of his big hits
Sounds like a church organ. It's just like, it feels like it like is a normal disco song that keeps mutating in front of your eyes. Yeah. Is this Gloria Gaynor? It isn't actually Gloria Gaynor, but people okay. that work, like part members of her band are on I this. see, right, right, right. Wait, I want to hear, uh, let me see if I can find where the trombone comes in. And then like, it's like Bitches Brew style keyboard mm. play. <laughs> as much as I love uh, like the actual album, Love is Overtaking Me, I really, really fell for this one. And that makes, yeah, like, that's, I think that's something that's really cool about Arthur is like all these, there's so many different sides of him. I think they're all going to speak, like different songs. Will there's speak something more. for everybody. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that I, I'm, I'm glad I watched the documentary before I listened to this to know that this is not who he was completely as much as an avenue. Mm -hmm. Does that yeah. make sense? That, so that's like, I, I yeah I really picked this more as an excuse to talk about him than like this is the best album. Hey, this whole thing, this whole friggin' project is just an excuse. <laughs> that's a really good something. point. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so he gets into these disco-y songs, and they start um, like on the album we're actually talking about. Like I I do really love uh, when the like they start getting influenced into these like pop songs i really like this song janine because his approach to playing the keyboard is so wild to put this in like a song like this this one reminded me of ween a little bit But then, like, so it kind of morphs back into like a singer-songwriter thing. But then that keyboard is still just going. This is definitely one of my favorite songs on the album. Mm. I don't know if you guys heartily disagreed or couldn't hear me, but this reminds me very hear you, I'm much. Sorry. Of me. I said it in the movement of silence, and I was like, "Uh oh." <laughs> What'd you say? <laughs> that this uh, reminds me very much of Ween. That song, Janine. <gasps> Yeah. I think yeah. there's a lot on this album well, actually that you could draw a certain comparison to I think some weed more stuff. specifically like Aaron Freeman's stuff and his solo stuff maybe mm. even yes. more. Especially his approach to like how he like messes with his voice feels yeah. very arthury. And again, also just that like not seeing genre is very we like like there's no reason we can't go from <laughs> Like a, a a punk song into a sea shanty into a, a beautiful instrumental like right <laughs> right the, the, it's all like it is all connected but... yeah, and that playfulness with the music and mm -hmm. oh yeah definitely definitely I like after I had re-listened to this one I was like and knowing what how much you love Ween Joe I was like yeah this makes perfect sense like mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah it um so then like yeah so then. 
the, the disco stuff is probably his biggest success while he's alive. It, it, it gets really adopted by the growing uh, gay club scene in New York at that time. It, they really fall for these wacko disco songs. They're fun. They're weird. They are playful. They're, they're very funny. Like, I, 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 Alan is talking about how much he loves it, but like, I really do recommend 24 24 music because they are funny they're weird they're impressive no alan recommended it i still but... would say try. <laughs> uh, yeah I, I mean like i i know i didn't pick that as opposed to this one but i it, it, it i couldn't love it <laughs> like, I, I still love it more yeah i'm definitely gonna have to to check that one out because i just knew the um the loose joints uh pop your funk Mm -hmm. stuff well, which yes. i also love but just that that one little clip that we listened to from that 24 24 I really, really like that. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a wild album. But so it, that gets released in his life under Dinosaur L. Um, and so that's a bit of a success. And he's working with um, really like uh, influential DJs who I, I don't really know this world so much, but like it, it, in like the underground New York art scene. And at this point, yeah, he's like in his 30s. Like he is older than a lot of these people, but he's just like, really embracing it and bringing these very different touches to it. So he's working with people like um, Francois Kevorkian is a pretty famous DJ producer. Uh, Julius Eastman? Julius Eastman is a, that's on his, um, uh, what do you call it? The, the, the score that never came out, Julius Eastman composed, uh, co uh, conducted for him. Oh, okay. Oh, oh and I guess amazing. he did also work on, <laughs> some of the disco songs which is also crazy like peter zumo is this really cool trombonist and avant-garde guy who i only discovered through arthur but he's had a pretty successful career on his own peter gordon's a really cool saxophonist so like they show up on these like disco songs and so again arthur is just uh, yeah larry levon is a famous um dj and producer so arthur is like again the spirit of collaboration like he is just bringing these people that otherwise would never collaborate and like introducing them to each other and like it seems like yeah kind of like wherever he goes he helps make connections and even when he's sabotaging himself his impact on music is much bigger than his success on his own and it's really very it's lovely like he's so excited that he left iowa and found these people yeah yeah and he's there is just a love of collaboration a love of making music and bringing that and it really comes through and I think like that's like watching this documentary, it really is both uh, heartbreaking that he never, he never really finds success in his mm -hmm. life, but yeah. then uh, so heartwarming that all these people that were touched by him continued to a stump for him. And he finds this success like years after his death and is like really now become a very celebrated force was in music because he just kept doing it and kept working and kept uh touching people's lives in a really interesting way and like they kept spreading it and it is, it is sweet that even if you're not recognizing your own time and it's sad that that can happen that you can be a genius that just never succeeds but then that people if you make something good enough people will still find it and love it and that's it's really wonderful you know like our podcast after all of our deaths <laughs> yeah. yes that's when we will be our most successful all of our quickly approaching deaths <laughs> yeah and so then um around this time the like 
I don't know here. Let's see when he actually starts dating Tom, but he meets Tom around this time uh, in. No, that doesn't doesn't say when. Like late late seventies, early eighties. He meets Tom. Hmm? Two thousand four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> basically sixteen. Yeah, well, twenty. I think two thousand nine. <laughs> so he meets Tom Lee, who's a silkscreen artist, and they like fall in love. They like move in together. I, I don't know if Allen Ginsberg is still paying for their apartment, but they move into it together. Hmm? I said, "Ooh." Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, this but, is when uh, they lived in that big like artist building with. Uh, yeah, it's Fraser. so funny because it was rent controlled. So Tom lives there. I think maybe even still lives there, or maybe he recently moved to, to like the country. I now. think I read that he moved out in like 2011 or something. But it's the kind of space that like they were like, like Arthur would like sometimes have an income like based on his music. But it seems like Tom was like working in like he was doing art on his own, but then also like working in like a factory doing a commercial silk screen prints. Mm-hmm. And like they were basically living in this like beautiful artist loft <laughs> on that one salary because at the time it was like where you, you could live in New York like that. Does but, rent controlled mean that the rent does not change? Yeah. So from like the 70s? Yeah. And now it's a fucking $400 a night Airbnb. Probably. It's, yeah. It was, it's an, it, like when you see it in the, the, uh, documentary it's it's a, it's a pretty ridiculous space uh yeah because it was also it essentially became arthur's studio uh when he's making the what a lot of people would consider his masterpiece um the album that does get released under his own name in his lifetime <laughs> that i'm sure he always said was unfinished um called world of echo and this is where he is really bringing it all together in a really uh new way it's this album that is just him his cello and uh, it's called world of echo he does really fascinating things with uh echo in it just to kind of like he wanted to create like a world where like you listen to it i highly recommend listening to it on headphones because like the way the phasing of the music it's really playing with music as an experience as a uh, a thing that you takes up space like it goes from ear to ear and you're meant to like really get immersed in it and it's a weird album but it is so engrossing once you get on its wavelength it doesn't sound like anything else and it you get the classical you get the disco you get this pop sensibility it feels like a culmination of everything he was working for I am such a sucker for cello, too. That's so beautiful. The way he, like, essentially plays, like, he composes with himself with the echo, it's it's wild that he, like, is able to, like, think ahead of how this will sound with the echo of what he just played. It's really weird hearing it, like, Dana and I were talking about they just released last year, um, live albums of him like, like preparing this music and it's it's crazy that he could do this live <laughs> yeah but i want you to hear like just because this song changes so much 
Oh, that delicate voice. Yeah. Mm. And so, like, this album just kind of becomes this, like, it's released in 86 on Rough Trade, which is, like, a pretty good, pretty great label, but... And it has some of his most famous songs. Wax the Van was a really famous one. But you see, like, 86, this just doesn't sound like anything. Lucky Cloud is a really good one. That's... Here, sorry, I'm gonna find. I have, I actually do own this one in a hard copy. And like Arthur's liner notes are really sweet that he wrote. So let me see if I can find it real quick. I'm sorry that I didn't have it. I meant to have it ready to go. I suck. I hate myself. I wish you had a GoPro, Joe. <laughs> nobody, fuck, nobody worse than me. <laughs> Just turn your computer around. We'll help you look. <laughs> I know. I have most of my albums are still at my parents' house, but I have this one somewhere. Oh well. Do you hide a... all your? You had to hide all your ones with synthesizers on them from your parents. So. No, his parents but... are strictly Quakers. <laughs> They're strictly. What folk is this electronic music? <laughs> uh, That's I, the devil's I, oh. patch. Electricity does not produce art, Joseph. Fingers, only fingers. And occasionally a pick. Yeah, and or a pick. There's oh, my dad actually does okay, finger also. pick his music. Okay, I found it. So you say your mom. So yeah. Oh, also just start playing it, but yeah. I, I really love this. So, I thought so, I had like, gone insane. I was like, "Is did something start playing? <laughs> something snapped." Yeah, you guys, uh, as I considered echo in various meanings as acoustic reverberation or electronically as a single delay, it seemed that in concepts of time and space, uh, concepts of time and space were expressed sonically. In the later case, projected dynamically to a theoretical world. The more practical application using currently available echo delay guitar boxes to provide the independently generated world of time to move through, like a PA system that can process any input, introducing a concept of interchangeability of materials. However, the idiomatic style I ended up using is not immediately referenceable in use of any echo matrix, whether a simple delay or layered computer device bears only incident reflection of the uh, sensibilities of listeners, ultimately the ultimate focus of attention. After listening to tapes, world and echo, as well as uh, foreign language sending, I've enjoyed the musical effect of wor words as sounds, but where the meaning is not totally withdrawn. So yeah, he really is just like, um, trying to create this sensation this world because um is the intention is not determined by genre nor meaning by dialect thresholds of musical understanding can occupy any threshold defined within a style and musical structure or outside of it 
breakthroughs can occur at any point in the chain. So he just really wanted it to be something that, yeah, this idea he's been working with his whole like career of like people can tune in and out and things might connect in like this immersive musical world he's trying to create. It's really nuts up in a beautiful way. So, kind of like you. a sound bath or something. Yeah, so thank you for bearing with me trying to find that. I hope that was interesting. <laughs> but yeah, so that, that gets released. Uh, gets very uh, critically acclaimed at its time, but obviously it's not a commercial album. It doesn't sell a ton, but it gets... Um, uh, it, it is later put on many best of the 80s lists years later after he dies so and... i didn't realize that that one was one that he was able to release while he was alive mm -hmm. so it's just that one that and was the only the one disco ones the only, like, and the disco one. one and then like i guess like to an extent the classical stuff but really like very limited release there oh but... okay all right so not calling out of context i don't know why i thought because that was the that was the first one put out by Attica. The, Maybe that's why. Yeah. So that 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 is a big album for reintroducing Arthur to a lot of people. It's yeah. Probably out of context is it it was a big success for right. their like this fledgling label and for Arthur and a lot of those actually similarly it's not all from one recording session but a lot of them were intended to be this album called Corn and like right before he died he was getting really like again. He was just so always uh he's like he's like if bowie had never been like successful he was just like always on like the the the, the cutting edge and like he did try to get in like he was really getting into hip-hop in the early 80s like he was always interested in what new music was coming out and so he the some of the beats are very hip-hop infused on um the album that would eventually become calling out of context and corn they did release an album called corn that is not but that was what it was supposed to be. It never gets released. And then um, sadly, right, basically right after the release out of, of World of Echo, uh, Arthur gets uh, diagnosed with HIV. He, his partner is not diagnosed. And so like, that's how it's so heartbreaking in the documentary. It's so that that's how his partner finds out that he would, they, like he had thought they were monogamous and then, Arthur gets AIDS and he doesn't end. Oh, it's so sad. It like And he's like the sweetest man, Tom, mm. in the documentary. <sighs> he... Yeah. But then they stay together and it's so beautiful. And like Arthur, like they just clearly like Arthur, there's a lot of stories. Like, you know, he was not always the easiest guy. Like he had he was a constant tinkerer. He was never always satisfied. He like yeah. needed to create. But, geniuses often are hard to get along with but this man just loved him so much and i think arthur you know he, he fucked up like he did cheat on him but he he loved him too and they stayed together until his death so he sorry I, I, he got he was diagnosed with hiv in 86 and then um between 86 and 92 it, it develops into aids and he dies of con, con, uh, complications related to that in 92 and he still was making music so some of these songs on love is over taking me are from the 90s so it's, it's pretty crazy like i think um 
this one if you uh oh fuck i just ruined that idea but let's see um put to a thought i think yeah you can hear the kind of like disco hip-hop and the rhythm section but very still like cello These oh, yeah, last still... three tracks on this album were so great. Yeah, Love Is Overtaking Me is really beautiful. And then I when... agree. I think it kind of, the album, like in terms of how much I enjoyed it anyway, it kind of like, it get, it's really good and then it sort of dips. Like that's all, I guess all I meant when I said it's like, it's, it's a little long for me. I feel like there's some fat, but so much of it is so great. Yeah. Yeah, it's not uh... hard when it's only posthumous releases because right. it's like, right. there's no need to trim the fat almost because it's like here's a it's collection better to just of get this it out era. right yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's but but is it better to get it out if you're making fat see i would say like when like i like if you don't listen to it as a full album like it, it's like maybe a lot to listen to all of it but i don't think any of these songs themselves are fat like as songs in i think my they're opinion. fat like ph like ph yeah. but i don't think it's like I don't think any of them should have not been released. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I know that's definitely what Dan is saying is that she wishes, uh, I'm going to say 30% of these songs were never released. Dana, Dana, no. Dana thinks <laughs> all artists should die in obscurity. <laughs> Dana was saying, I wish it was 3016 it came out. I think it was. <laughs> Maybe then that, people will appreciate it. Like if I can paraphrase, that's exactly <laughs> what you said. If I can paraphrase what we had to edit out of this episode without all the profanity, it's that 33% of these songs in Dana's opinion should have been caught. Oh, it's just it's so long, but but it's not me. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also like I'm I'm happy that that they are out there, and especially because like he produced so much. Like if in the documentary you see the tapes, like and you see like different photos of him with just like these like reel to reel. Mm. Like it's just like all he did was record, 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 and so it's better to have it out, obviously, than than not at all and i really like like i they like show him doing this in the documentary but it wasn't on this uh album of his overtake me there's like a thing of him just like he looks like like a spaceman like just with his like little like reel-to-reel recorder uh like just standing on a rock by the ocean and then it it is on this song where it's just like ocean noises and like beats and cello and it's just it is pretty cool that you could just like hear that it's so cool mm. i liked the one uh, where his um his partner there tom was like he would just like sit by the aquarium in the house and just like make sure you could hear the aquarium you would like, turn the put the get the water low so yeah it would gurgle i like too that tom ended up going to stay with arthur's parents and like would watch their house while they were away and stuff and that they got to have like more of their son and like an extension of that a little bit yeah it's, it's like really sweet because to the story that's where i always cry is when um arthur is like dying and they ask tom what he thinks they should do it's like just like this real um Especially acknowledgement of of tom's role as 
essentially yeah. um, his partner yeah right and they didn't even know no. that that arthur was gay and they're from iowa they're like these two like you know old, they're so old, <laughs> yeah. old <laughs> iowa like very you know obviously they were extremely intelligent and i know that the mom was a cello player as well mm-hmm. so like there was art in the house i'm sure but it's just like i was very surprised to to hear them like say that and the fact that they still to this day or i assume or at least till 2009 when wild combination came out um you know keep in touch with with the boyfriend tom yeah and it's so it's so cute like i just like it is just such like a grumpy old man way of being progressive like the dad's just like you know tom's such a great guy you know what so what if he's my son's gay lover (laughs) yeah grumpy old dad way you can tell it's like uh whatever I, I forget the dad's name but someone in town being like who's that guy you're always with now it's like ah it's my son's gay lover and they're like what is it hey so what he's a good man yeah yeah <laughs> it is just like hey, i just like him okay like he i wouldn't have known him without my son is like it, it he's it, a good boy and it, it really feels like there was so much of that like um conflict in like arthur's early relationship with his parents and for him to die with them in a very sweet like finally understood way is mm. like i'm getting like kind of choked i'm up gonna now. cry yeah. Stop. It, it, it it's a beautiful ending as sad as it is it's really like he died just just shy of his like 41st birthday and in relative obscurity and then um luckily tom saved all these thousands of tapes and years later who knows how many (laughs) Um, it's crazy that like how close i guess the world was to not to never having this i know and then like all um, it takes is one thing to go wrong and a hundred tapes are gone you know yeah just one one fire basically like could have ruined all that like that had been to what's his name like the rizza from wu-tang like his basement flooded he lost like thousands of early wu-tang like beats yeah Yeah. so it's just like it it, it doesn't it it, it couldn't it doesn't have to be anybody's fault like it's just it could have this could have never existed it happens on like every scale yeah yeah and luckily um it, it it was preserved uh at, at some point let's see 2004 soul jazz records releases the world of arthur Russell, and that i guess actually starts people being more interested in him and then that same year i bet Attica, that's where i heard some of this stuff Attica releases calling out of context that's the first Attica release and Attica is tom lee and this guy steve nutson any idea what Attica means or is i I have it's from no dog idea. day afternoon no that's attica <laughs> uh but um yeah so that they attica has now been that's because it's through tom they have most of the tapes and they've been pr- producing a steady release of uh restoring and remastering these these tapes like yeah i think on this album uh, i don't know i never really listened to them but the guy from Grizzly Bear, which is like an electronic band. Um, you can definitely hear the Arthur influence on them. He 
helped uh, remaster the tracks on Love is Overtaking Me. Um, I didn't realize Autica was just Arthur Russell. Basically, they put out one other album. I have, like, let's see, their band camp. Oh, that's it's, the but, band camp that you're on right now. Okay. Because mm-hmm. I just went to look out. I, I did not realize that. We're Exclusive all on label. the band camp right now. Exclusive label and home for the Arthur Russell archive. Yeah. You know, it's weird. I do some work for the record label Mississippi Records, which is also based out of Portland. And I was on a thread with those guys the other day, and one of them signed it off, Attica Forever. And I don't, I was afraid to ask what it meant because I felt like I should know, even though I don't. But I might ask them now. Yeah. Attica Forever, what does it mean? And they did, uh, they, yeah, they put out two live albums last year. So they're still, they're still working through this massive archive that doing really cool stuff i really recommend checking out their band camp or because they don't really have a website other than their band camp and their facebook like if you click on autica records it just redirects the to band their camp. band camp but they're um really excellent they've certainly made quarantine a much better place for me because i've been listening to all of this pretty non-stop and i just find I, there's something about arthur's his voice in the 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 cello playing is very calming to me even when it's chaotic in some of the disco things like so, a wave washing over you yeah so whenever i'm having a tough day i usually come back to arthur and then one of the most wild arthur continuing to be relevant things is that he's actually sampled on a kanye song hmm. called 30 hours which is who would have You say they never saw this coming, well, you're not alone. Million dollar renovations to a happy home. My ex said she gave me the best years of her life. I saw a recent picture of her, I guess she was right. I wake up, accessing the damages. Checking media takeout. Pictures of me drunk walking out with a bitch. But it's blurry enough to get the fake out. I wake- yeah, so people are just still fine. Like, it's just cool that he's still kind of relevant and getting reinterpreted in contemporary pop in really cool ways wild yeah that's amazing what album is that on life of pablo which is oh okay i think if you want to talk about an album that is very chaotic and could have probably used an an editor like there's there's a great album in there (laughs) (laughs) wasn't that the one that he like would he kept like cutting and recutting and Mm -hmm. releasing re-releasing yeah and I think I think I think that's probably like Kanye probably saw a very kindred spirit in Arthur in an interesting way. This unsettled need to keep producing, like, and uh, Kanye, the man and the rapper, leaves a lot to be desired. But the producer is uh, leaves a lot to be desired. <laughs> yeah, he's disappointed because he's so talented as a producer. I think he really is. He's he's got a weird interesting musical ear that is really special but he's not a particularly great rapper or <laughs> guy <laughs> but that's the, the you know like we said sometimes you know mental illness and genius could be hand in hand and yeah. challenging and yeah but i just love like like, uh, like they have like a long list of people that like have like continued to cite arthur as an influence and it, I think because of these posthumous re-releases, his legacy is now much more secured than it ever was in his life. 
And um, that's really uh, kind of wonderful. Yeah. Mm. Anything uh, else you wanted to, to say about it? Anything oh, I, you wanted to listen to? Or? Sure. Yeah, I, I'm happy to like, go through songs you guys want to listen to, too. But um, I think like, is a hearing aid company in Australia. <laughs> I haven't been able to find anything about what it means, but that means it must mean something. Yeah, maybe it's like, <laughs> it's from like it could be from like a a Greek or Latin. If you Google Autica meaning, it just says thanks. But huh. it never explains what that means. <laughs> okay. It just says thanks no language i'm gonna email steve at autograrecords.com and figure out what it means and get back to you guys about it cool now we have please, to know please do and then i think like the one thing that's kind of cool of like me getting really into this and then like i said i got really into the magnetic fields and so like the beginning of my quarantine was a lot of very queer experimental music and uh uh, a lot of like a lot of uh, Stephen Merritt's from the Magnetic Field songs were like he he never um, he luckily survived the AIDS epidemic unscathed but like lost a lot of people and so a lot of his songs are about that and then art there so it just I I, I <laughs> a lot of early then there was an epidemic here so a lot of the beginning I was just thinking about AIDS a lot I asked my dad I never really thought about this that he worked at a VA hospital for uh, since like 80 he came back to the states in 1980 so he worked at the VA hospital just at the front desk so I'm like oh you were at a hospital during the AIDS epidemic like what was that like and I got this really beautiful story that I don't know that I ever would have heard before uh, if, I, if I hadn't been loosely tied to Arthur that my dad's like one of the security guards at the hospital got AIDS and like had not been out to anybody and so like then a lot of the security guards were homophobic and like kind of refused to see him so then my dad just like would visit him every day like in the hospital like they just like because my dad didn't care that he was gay he was an old hippie a lot of his friends were then um like it just like uh, he just became like his like only friend at the hospital like for that like they just like shared this until he died it was just like holy fuck dad like this is a really powerful story that you just like went through and didn't talk about like i, I don't get old men <laughs> they just don't they don't yeah i, I never would have heard that <laughs> if it wasn't for like just like kind of this like random that's pretty amazing yeah so um yeah is there any songs you guys want to hear anything you guys want to talk about before we wrap up i would love to listen to eli this is yeah. so fun because before you were on here alan do you want to chime in oh i was this was this was one of the songs i was not crazy about well we don't have to listen to the whole thing um i think that it's kind of like uh hard to listen to but this is what i think this is the one that i heard that i was like on that that live performance where i was like where does his voice end and the cello begin you know
and it's track 10 so this really is just in the middle of the album mm. there's just so much on this album that i think is like it's very much like you know it's like him kind of re-examining like his childhood mm-hmm. experience in a lot of ways. Like I feel like a lot of these songs lyrically anyway. And oh, even... this time dad, you're wrong. <laughs> like, <laughs> I love that. Or what's the one where he's like, I, when I saw my orange birthday cake, like. <laughs> <laughs> Do you play a little bit of Nobody Wants a Lonely Heart? Oh, that one's oh, that's one a beautiful favorites. song. And it's got like a Dylan-esque. Definitely. I forget which song now. I can't. I think it's "Time Away," where he really sounds like he sings in this a very similar way to like Richard Hell. Yeah, they had mentioned that they all lived in the same building. Oh, that's another thing. When they, I forget who who he was that was talking about when they all lived there, and when Tom would go to work, he and Arthur would just go out together, and check out dudes and like hang out and get sandwiches <laughs> i was like that is the life is <laughs> your yeah. partner goes to work you just get together with your bud and you're like let's go fucking do nothing for the afternoon i've never been so oh, i love of... that horn break what are you gonna say alan sorry and nothing i was so jealous of that horn break joe that's what i was gonna say <laughs> I love, um, I think this song, What It's Like, is really powerful. Where it's kind of like, like a monologue for like the first half about like a young preacher and and Arthur definitely being more sympathetic to the the lady (laughs) that like, like, it's just so beautiful. This is a great one. I love when he goes, okay. I've been touched by the Lord. <laughs> I love it. But um, yeah, any other? Oh. I should just let this one play. What a ride. Yeah, the guitar going on in it is so like great. And I'd really recommend also like from 2019. This is what I know actually did come out in 2019. <laughs> uh, Iowa Dream okay. is really good. And it's got yeah, a lot more of those like punky stuff. songs and some more disco stuff at the end. I've enjoyed them. Oh, excuse me. We're not able to bring this home under two hours. I've been touched by the Lord. Dana, did you unmute yourself just to say that, then remuted yourself? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I 
re-muted myself. I definitely didn't need to. Totally not used to recording with people around. Yeah. <laughs> Then, yeah, this build. I think in a lot of ways, Arthur kind of also reminds me of um, Harry Nielsen in that, like, he's, like, definitely probably more famous for, like, one thing. Like, with Harry, it's, like, he's, like, crazy vocal range at, like, the beginning of his career. Then Arthur, it's, like, his avant-garde, like, composing and, like, musical arrangements. But then on top of that, they were also just great lyricists and also their own worst enemies. Like, yeah. I just, I just see a lot of parallels. The only thing they were better at than music was self-sabotage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love this song. Can you guys guess which of these songs was uh, Arthur's favorite? Tom revealed that at one point. No, I don't know. I would guess Nobody Wants a Lonely Heart. Maybe. Any, any guesses from you, Alan? I have no guess. Uh, it's the letter, which is a uh, good song, but not what I would have guessed. I thought you said the good song. <laughs> good one on the album. This has some of that more like disco influence. I don't know. I guess this is just. It's, it feels like the lyrics are a little opaque here, so maybe it had more meaning. Like that was something they talk about in the documentary that a lot of the songs were just like kind of like very like secret, like low key, like love letters to Tom, and it's just really sweet watching him like go through the archive and just like having these memories. It is really sweet in the documentary with Tom talking about how he would just load up with however many cassettes he needed before, for like depending on how long he'd be out of the house. Yeah. It just feels like Arthur is like always a little bit there with him. Mm. Okay, so I found two degrees of Zappa in a very strange thing. I did not know the Zappa did. Yo, could, could you turn it down a little bit? <laughs> Burn. <laughs> Get wrecked, nerd. But, um, so I guess Zappa, so two degrees in that it was, um, 
Phil Glass, uh, John Cage, and Allen Ginsberg, all so all with one degree away from Arthur, were part of this 1979 thing called the Nova Convention that I had never heard of. Where Me neither. This, it's a tribute to uh, William S. Burroughs, uh, uh, experimental novelist and poet and wife shooter. <laughs> <laughs> and uh like it was a tribute to him uh i think his wife stayed with him after she he shot him so it was just because he was all crazy about a drug Usually so that's a weird shot you don't go anywhere well maybe <laughs> but i think like everyone agreed it was like just him being fucked up on drugs and an accident and, uh either way uh zappa was just also at this tribute and apparently read an excerpt from Naked Lunch called The Talking Asshole. So huh. uh, I had never heard of this, but that was you know, only two degrees away from right there. So. I don't think I've ever heard that. I didn't know. For whatever reason, it just seems like Zappa would hate the beats. So hmm. I just wouldn't have assumed that he would participate in this big beat poetry convention. But whatever, he did. Um. I have another degree from Zappa if you want to cue that song back up. Do it. Sorry. So we got Arthur Russell mm-hmm. who uh, worked with the Modern Lovers. Mm-hmm. And the Modern Lovers uh, drummer David Robinson dated uh, Miss Christine from P.O.'s oh. who Zappa released their album and she was on the cover of Hot Rats. So that's a three degrees from Zappa. Pretty cool. So those are two, like, those are fun ones. Those are weird connections. All right. What did you guys want to share? What have you been listening to? Who wants to go first? For for my my song this week um, is 42 Minutes. <laughs> okay. And uh, So we will um, listen to all of it. <laughs> and we're going to listen to all of it starting now. So everybody get a glass of water. Um, so Henry Flint, actually, this is like sort of a companion piece, I feel like, to uh, Love is Overtaking Me in general. And also like just Ar- Arthur Russell's sort of whole like vision for how his music should be. Um, so Henry Flint was actually, he he was booked by Arthur Russell at the kitchen to play. He was very much oh. part of that scene. And I didn't realize it, but his thing was oh, what okay. he Here's called. Oh, okay, band called Foxes. Oh, I've okay. heard of them. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Uh, well, he was, he, he did uh, his music, like the whole, I guess, idea behind it was hillbilly tape music. So it's like he plays the fiddle. He's like an experimental fiddle player, I believe in violinist. And he would like layer that with like, you know, there's like a sitar and drone on this one. Like, so I, I had heard this. Uh, before I even realized actually that it was called You Are My Ever Lovin', which is just so like spot on to, you know, what we're talking about this week with Love Is Overtaking Me. Um, and before I really realized that he was also in that scene, like I'm sure they were like buddies, uh, Henry mm. Flint and Arthur Russell. Um, but this is just like, it's a very, very beautiful uh, 40 minute piece. And, and what I've heard of his music is all sort of similar in a similar vein to Arthur Russell's where it's like the experimental scene doesn't have to live separately from like a more like contemporary pop scene 
or just in in any genre. He was like very very genre fluid, uh, like Arthur Russell, and uh, I really really love this. I love that they, they were apparently he was in a band with Arthur called the Dharma Warriors. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> That's a sick name. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So yeah, John Cage, like very much like, you know, in the same circle as Arthur Russell. Um, and this this piece really touched me. So I I wanted to give it a shout out on while we talked about, you know, Arthur's legacy. Hmm. Thanks, Dana. This is really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you want to jump around in it a little bit, like just because it is 40 minutes long, we're not going to sit here and listen to everything. But it's kind of like a similar, you know, idea to like, you know, you can just sort of duck in, like dive in and out and still get it, I think. And like a lot of sort of like drone and ambient music is like that. Um, but to, to hear somebody... Or to hear, like, you know, Arthur say that about his own music. And then, like, you know, this piece is 40 minutes long, 42 minutes. And, like, is very much in the same vein. And it's very fitting that, like, the whoever uploaded this to YouTube just happened to pick, like, an Indian Buddha statue yeah. as the thing. And that's very... I, I feel like... We're probably the only people that have talked about Arthur for like over two hours and not used the term Buddhist bubblegum, which is a term <laughs> that he used to describe his own music. And so right. That's nice. That was to... a really great way to put it, too. Yeah. I love the idea of like this like blending of like Appalachian type stuff with like high art. Yeah. Because I think that, here, let's see, I have his Wikipedia pulled up. Um, yeah, born in North Carolina, you know, and then moved to, to New York and sort of joined the same avant-garde um, scene that Arthur Russell was in. Well, it is always interesting what is and isn't high art. Like, that is such a stupid distinction. So I love guys like Arthur and guys like Zappa like just really obliterating that and like this is like like this is like long tradition of these people playing violins and like some violin is art and this is country music and then like yeah. to kind of obliterate that it's so goofy yeah yeah um and on the uh so the record label that put this out was is called Superior Viaduct and uh it just there's a little write-up on their website about it. It says, hmm. featuring solo electric violin, pre-recorded tambura, uh, the cineous performance elegantly brings together disparate vernacular, southern blues, modal jazz, Appalachian fiddle, North Indian raga into a new and bracing whole. So very much like a, a companion piece to, to Arthur Russell's music. As well. hmm. I think they had a similar vision. They were just Dharma warriors. Right. That's my, I've been listening to that a lot this week. Well, that, that's that really, really cool. really cool. Thank you. What did you want to share, Alan? Boring old, same old shit. <laughs> super heavy. Yeah, you guys like other oh. super heavy songs? I am excited. I don't know this song. I don't uh, either. So I've been listening to, I've been, you know, I've been in a bit of a sad mood. And when I get into a real sad mood, I like to listen to Caesar by Ween. 
mm. which is one of their uh, like dark albums, I guess you would call it, uh, where pretty much every Ween album, there's a second album that they didn't release uh, of like just other tracks from those same sessions. And you can almost all find pretty much everything on YouTube, which is one of my favorite things about this band. They yeah, that's just kind of let everything go. Uh, but Caesar was like the other album that they made alongside well like all the, another album worth of demos that they made alongside Quebec mm-hmm. and uh, this was just like this is a really beautiful pretty song very like simplistic too but this is the kind of stuff that like Janine reminded me of Aaron might be the closest to someone who also sings like Arthur. Yeah. Very soft. Yeah, that that, that blend of like childlike wonder with like cynicism and potty humor. And <laughs> yeah. Did you guys watch that Ween video that I sent to the group chat? Oh yes, I had seen that before. Oh uh, fuck, I. I think I was drunk when do you sent it, so I didn't see it. Do yourself a favor and get drunk again and watch it. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a live Ween performance from like spring break 1993 or something. Right after oh. Guava. Oh, sick. And it is awesome. Like, the, I actually didn't watch the performance. I just watched the like, it's like an MTV style, like... We're down here at Spring Break. Oh, that's so funny. Well, you noticed who was hosting it. What's that? You noticed who was hosting it. Nope, I didn't. You didn't? No. <laughs> it's the Wheeze. That's amazing. It's Polly Shore. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's such an <laughs> okay, artifact. Well that, yeah, that explains it, actually. I thought it was just a dude doing, like, a Polly Shore thing. No, that's, like, why Polly Shore <laughs> got big, was him doing the Wheeze, the Weasel. <laughs> what are we doing next week? Okay, Ooh. so next week, we're going to take a, a turn um, down a little road I like to call Spiritual Jazz Avenue. Um, so I don't know how much you guys know about sort of like eastern influenced jazz uh, music but uh, Alice Coltrane is one of the most uh, precious musicians to ever exist wife of John Coltrane harp and piano player Um, we're going to talk about her album World Galaxy uh, and and her her life in general Um, she you know obviously played with John Coltrane was like very much a part of the the jazz scene um and then by the end of her life she went you know full krishna and uh it's just like a lot of chanting and very spiritually touching music but this album world galaxy it is such like a it's so it's so deeply spiritual but also like deeply like heavy like freak out jazz it free jazz music. fucking rules it sure fucking I does i love this album okay. <laughs> i, I can't not realize this was a real person but it was just a meme so there's a real guy named oh. Leroy jenkins on it. yeah oh <laughs> i was like what meme i don't 
but that's um that's that's what we're going to be talking about next week i'm very excited because she is a musician that uh i have just really fallen in love with over the past uh, i don't know 10 years or so um and she had a very very rich long life of creating incredible music um so there's a lot to talk about uh she's often overshadowed by her husband's legacy uh obviously john coltrane um but for those not in the know you're about to get in the know about my favorite coltrane alice coltrane i'm so excited i've never listened to this album so i'm really excited yeah it's gonna be a good I'm, one i'm pumped i love these early alice uh, coltrane albums yeah i feel like I'm more obsessed with like her nephew, uh, Flying Lotus. I didn't know that Flying Lotus was her nephew. I also or grand nephew, sorry. I didn't know that either. Wow. Oh, wait, the is that we R- Ravi's uh, son or? Huh. Well, I guess we'll get into that. I guess we'll have to find out. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, um, so that's coming up next week. Sweet. Well, I guess that puts a lid on this one. You guys got anything else before we sign off? Mm, nope. All right. Let's get back into Ween, though, before we go. Yeah. This is pretty let's, good sign-off music. Let's sign off with this song. We'll see everybody next week. All right. Until then. <laughs> Nerds. <laughs> See you later, you fucking nerds. <laughs> it's awesome how much Ween fucking clearly loved Prince. Yeah. <laughs> it's also insane that none of these songs got released. Yeah, what the hell? You know what they gotta do? They gotta release a nice big box set with all this shit i don't think they ever will because everyone just it's all up for download yeah brown tracker that's nice too yeah <laughs> what's like wasn't there like a digital like ep that they like secret release where like the album art was just a close-up of dean's balls no that was like that was like their uh